This is the word of the Lord. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Dear Father, thank you for this um, time to come together to study your word. Um, It's something that has withstood the ages, and it's something that um, inspires us. It gives us hope, and we see its message of salvation, which we long for. Um, We see that the prophets studied it, and the angels uh, look into it. And I pray that you would open our hearts, that we would be impacted by your word today. In your name, amen. Please be seated. All right, some of you may have seen the recent documentary on um, Mr. Rogers that came out uh, not too long ago, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor? It wasn't the most entertaining movie that I've ever seen, um, but it was neat to see Fred's vision for how TV ought to be used actually as a ministry avenue for children, and how his philosophy so differed from other productions as well. Um, He was actually an ordained minister, but he saw... TV as an outreach opportunity for children. So if you're a big fan of Mr. Rogers, you'll get another opportunity to learn more about him soon because uh, Tom Hanks will be starring in a biopic about him anticipated to be released in October 2019 called You Are My Friend. So I assume many of you in the audience uh, grew up with Mr. Rogers in some fashion or another. So raise your hand if either you watched it or your children watched it. Okay, good. All right, so then you will all be familiar with one thing that he did that was very effective and unique to him in reaching children was by putting things to song. So he helped children work through their angry feelings, their sad feelings, helping change their perspective. So I think that if Mr. Rogers were to have teamed with Peter to encourage first century Christians who were mistreated and felt alienated by their culture, this is how I think Mr. Rogers would have summarized Peter's letter and especially our passage. So, you are Christ's friend, you are special. You are Christ's friend, you're special to him. The prophets and angels aren't like you. Like you, Christ's friend, God likes you. So I don't know if you guys ever heard that. Thank you. Ruth Ruth didn't want me to sing, thank you. Um, But yeah, so that is actually the toddler's paraphrase edition, if you hadn't heard that. Of, of First Peter. So if you've um, been to the last few sermons or read First Peter on your own, you'll know that one of the primary themes to our book is on suffering. So Peter is writing to encourage believers by reminding them of their identity in Christ and their joy in salvation. And our passage here this morning is purpose to do the same thing. You might even call it the capstone of his letter when it comes to encouraging the believers. So his audience, Peter's audience, includes Jewish and Gentile Christians that are scattered in Asia Minor, and they're undergoing some degree of persecution. Each believer is actually viewed as a foreigner in their beliefs, but also culturally, too. A lot of them are probably exiles from Rome. 
So Peter's main emphasis here is he's contrasting their identity in Christ versus they're rejected by their culture. Although they're rejected by culture, they're chosen by God. And his letter was timely for his immediate audience, but also for Christians in the not-too-distant future who would soon undergo much more severe persecution at the hands of Emperor Nero and Domitian. Um, So these themes of suffering and encouragement, they're frequently interwoven throughout his letter with theological statements, practical instruction for Christian living. So I think Scott McKnight summarized the letter well. He said, Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. And our passage, verses 10 through 12, is meant to be of the greatest encouragement. It's a primary reason to press on and hold fast to the faith. He proclaims that these persecuted Christians are more privileged than any prior prophet and are even the envy of the angels. So Peter's giving his spiritual pep talk here. He's wanting to inspire them. If you look at verse 13, the next word is therefore. So this is an inspiration to live by um, obeying the commandments and committing themselves to the Christian way. So our passage here functions as theological fuel for passionate godly living. And Peter is cheerleading for this Christian commitment. And this passage of salvation is kind of his rah-rah in that sense. So here's Peter's main point for our whole passage. Believers are privileged to experience such a great salvation. No matter the trials we face or the suffering that we endure, we have a salvation that the prophets searched for that the spirit inspired, that the apostles preached, and that the angels are captivated by. So with that context in mind, we're going to move through five main points that are in your outline. First, we're going to talk about the greatness of the gospel. Second, what the prophets knew and what they wanted to know. Third, why are the angels so interested in this? Fourth, how do the prophecies serve us today? And fifth, what is our blessed privilege that the believers have? So beginning from the top of the list, let's start out with the greatness of the gospel. So Peter starts or opens his letter with gospel truths in verses 3 through 5, and he continues to sprinkle the gospel through his entire letter. Salvation is what prompts Peter to write these few verses in our passage here, and in the preceding verses, Peter describes how believers have inexpressible joy because of the salvation that we have for our souls. And then he expounds on this salvation in our passage, verses 10 through 12, but he does it in a pretty unique way. He doesn't proclaim its greatness from his own point of view or from any general believer in terms of what we all appreciate about the gospel. He actually does it by explaining it from the, uh, through the eyes of the four agents who bring it or who distribute it. So Peter describes the greatness of the gospel or salvation from the Old Testament prophets who proclaimed the message the Holy Spirit who inspired the message, the New Testament apostles who preached the gospel, and the angels who gaze on the gospel. So let's consider the first thing that Peter remarks about salvation, looking back at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The prophets who foretold about this grace would come. This is the grace that we experience. Now, we may take it for granted, of course, salvation is based on grace. We all know that. But this is something that the prophets were studying and pondering. They were fascinated to study that the grace of God, God's undeserved blessing, his unearned favor, his forgiving goodness towards sinners, that this would be something that God was promising to do for them apart from the works of the law. 
That's a radical shift from the Old Testament. And although grace was not absent in the Old Testament, it surely wasn't a central theme, nor commonly experienced. So if you were to search the Bible, at least the ESV, for the term grace, you'll find it appears 10 times in the Old Testament versus 118 in the New Testament. Now, take into account the New Testament, or the Old Testament's about 3.4 times longer, and that means that you're having the word grace appear in the New Testament about 40 times more frequently than in the, in the Old Testament. It just simply wasn't um, as commonplace. Whereas grace is foundational, and we might even call it commonplace in Christianity, but it It was the subject of study and contemplation for the prior prophets. I imagine they were trying to wrap their minds around how would this grace line up with the Mosaic law, which is full of consequences and sacrificial requirements. Ezekiel, for example, he probably thought long and hard about how God would implement the revelation that God gave him. In chapter 36, 26 through 27, it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah probably had a similar curiosity when considering the novel revelation God gave him in chapter 31, verses 33 through 34. It says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, never in all of history leading up to Jeremiah's life had God forgiven iniquity and forgotten sin without some serious recompense from mankind. So we see Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they were trailblazing new theological territory but they only got a glimpse of God's saving grace and from a distance. They didn't get to experience it themselves. None of the Old Testament prophets or the Old Testament prophets and the saints described in Hebrews 11, which we call the Hall of Faith, this is what it says of them. It says that they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So we are blessed not only to know and understand the outworking of this grace that the prophets studied, but to be the active recipients of God's grace in our salvation. And so we see grace is central to salvation. And in our passage, we see it as a pursued theme to each of the four different groups. Salvation was the theme of the prophet's study, the spirit's inspiration, the apostle's testimony, and the angel's interest. It's also a central theme to Peter's letter. So let's quickly look at a few components to salvation as stated by Peter in his letter. In chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says that we have been born again for believers. And this is the same explanation, if you remember, in John chapter 3, when Peter, or when John's meeting with, or Jesus, when he's meeting with Nicodemus, he explains to him, you know, how, how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? He says, you must be born again. And there's actually something interesting here in terms of the word again has a dual meaning. It can also be translated as above. So the logic that Jesus is using here is that you have to be born of above to be in the kingdom of above. So if you're going to enter heaven, you have to be born in heaven. So it doesn't just mean a, a redo, a start over in life. It actually means a new identity and a new citizenship. So this new birth comes through new belief and new faith in Jesus as Lord. And as you submit to Jesus, you become a child of God because you are born of God. 
And uh, it, it follows it saying that you're born again to a living hope. So we have a life-giving inspiration, hope, and meaning in life. That's part of the gospel. And then verse 4 says that there's an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us. So we can let go of all these things. We can let go of worldly, worldly items and worries, knowing that there's something far better and permanent in heaven. It changes our perspective. And we could go on, but as First, first Peter is replete with salvation statements... But I'll settle for just one more summary statement. I think Peter captures the gospel well. In uh, chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. So we know from this, we needed to be saved from the consequences of sin. Christ paid that penalty on the cross, and he reconciled our relationship with God. And in doing so, he died in our place so that he could bring us home to God. Overall, the gospel is clearly a message of grace, being saved by the works of Jesus Christ and not by your own works. It's a beautiful message. You can trust in God's finished work and not in your failed attempts. It's free, it's eternal, and it's for you. So if if these verses comprise a new understanding for you, then I ask that you would talk with me or some other member here after the service. But the gospel, it's a beautiful thing. So that's our first point. Because of the greatness of the gospel, you can trust in God's grace and not in yourself. It's also related to our second point, because grace was the studied studied object of the prophets. And as part of our second point, let's first observe the demeanor and the mindset of the prophets before we look at the specifics of what they were focusing on. So verses 10 and 11, it describes them searching and inquiring. Basically, we see they don't have the answers They don't exactly know what it is that they're prophesying. They were reading and rereading prior prophecies and their own, trying to piece together the puzzle of how this grace that they prophesied would actually be enacted. They knew that grace was coming, but they didn't know how or when. So Peter paints a picture of the prophets diligently searching and carefully inquiring into what will happen and when, almost as if they're trying to decode a riddle. And each prophet or generation of prophets can build on or leverage the prior prophecies and their understanding there. This is a term that we would call progressive revelation, where you learn something each time. So over time, for example, generations learned that the Christ would come through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, then Judah, then David, and so on. And with each prophecy, such as, you know, a ruler would come forth from Bethlehem, they're getting more clues into where and when the Messiah would come. So we see Malachi added to Zechariah, who added to Ezekiel and Daniel, who then added to Jeremiah, who added to Isaiah, and so on. It's kind of like being given a riddle, and then each person would get subsequent clues. And looking back on the clues in the riddle, once you know the answer, it's fairly clear where it's leading, but sometimes it's hard to know until you can look back. So, for example, I'll give you a riddle this morning here. When you need me, you throw me away, but when you're done with me, you bring me back. What am I? So, and then here would be my clues. This would be the progressive revelation that you would get. It involves water. It's useless without a rope or a chain, and it's used for traveling. So if you think you know the answer, go ahead and tell your neighbor. It's okay to talk. Does anyone think they know? 
Yeah, so that might be what it's, the experience of prophesying was like, except your neighbor wouldn't have the answer. So do you, I don't know if you want me to tell you, but it's an anchor, a boat anchor. So you throw it away and then you take it back. So anyway, when you're thinking through a riddle like that, there's an active thought with each clue. You're, you're processing it, trying to figure it out. And I think that's somewhat similar to maybe what the prophets were encountering. They get their new prophecy. Jeremiah doesn't exactly know what God told him. He's just trying to figure out and put this all together with what he had learned beforehand. This suspense of when and how the Messiah would come, it might be likened to if a friend were to recommend a movie to you, but the only thing they tell you is there's this great twist at the end. And then for the whole movie, you're subtly trying to figure out what is this. You know, you're trying to figure out before they reveal the twist so you can feel smart about yourself. But when we know to expect something, it holds your attention for the whole movie. So imagine that, but multiplied a hundredfold, because it's not just a movie, it's the Messiah who's coming. The prophets knew that the Messiah and salvation were coming, but they didn't know how or when. One clue that the text gives us about why they might not be grasping their own prophecies is that it wasn't them actually doing the predicting. If you look back at it, and we can't see this in the English text, but in the Greek text, grammar indicates that it's the spirit of Christ, not the prophets, that is doing the predicting. And also the word that's used for predicted, it actually means to testify or to witness beforehand. So it doesn't mean, hey, I bet this is going to happen. That's my best guess. It's actually taking a stand to testify to a future event. And of course, the prophets couldn't testify to something that hasn't happened yet, but Jesus could. The Spirit of Christ could testify to what would happen. So in this sense, you can see the prophets were truly trying to puzzle together and process the information because they themselves did not really grasp what it fully was that they were speaking. So now let's look at um, what they were most interested in. So their focus, I think it's a rather logical human response. You know, if you get, they're getting a profound revelation from the Holy Spirit, they want to know when and how. And then probably, most likely, they want to know if it'll happen in their lifetime and if they need to do anything to prepare for it. So verse 11, it tells us here what they were curious about. It says, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, the translations will differ on the wording in this verse here. The one that the ESV translates is what person. It's actually kind of a tricky one to translate because it's such a vague word. Um, it's just a generic interrogative pronoun, which could mean anything from who, what, where, or why. It's really any inquiry into a person, place, or thing. Um, so it could mean who is the Christ, or what time will it happen, or where will it happen. Um, I think one of the commentators gave some good reasons that I think are captured well in the NIV's translation of trying to find out the time and circumstances, or the Berean Study Bible says trying to determine the time and setting. Basically, each prophet was curious as to when and in what setting their prophecies would be fulfilled. And they probably want to know, first and foremost, if it's going to happen in their lifetime. And according to verse 12, it looks like they at least got a partial answer to that question. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. So they probably knew it wasn't going to happen in their lifetime, that the revelation wasn't for them to figure out, but to serve future generations of Christians, including us today. So that tells us that the Old Testament prophecies, hundreds of years before Christ came, that they were primarily for our benefit. But before we evaluate what that benefit is specifically, let's quickly look at another uh, lesson exemplified for us in verse 10. 
So I think the prophets, they set two examples for us. One, they set an example for us in how we ought to approach scripture. They searched and inquired carefully. And the NIV puts this well, saying they searched intently and with the greatest care. And the word search, it doesn't mean to quickly, uh, quickly uh, flip through different pages or, you know, where did I last read that in the scroll? You know, where did I see that prophecy last time? Or to think through your mind, trying to search through and see if you can remember something. It means to conduct a very thorough and uh, diligent examination. So we can learn from the prophet's disposition to prior scripture, to prior prophecies that had been written down, that we must study the word intently and thoroughly. We cannot flippantly page through scripture haphazardly stringing bits and pieces of theology together. That's application number one, to seriously study the word. But there's a second and a modifying application that's uh, depicted by their disposition of inquiry here. The word inquired means to seek an outcome, but it's interesting because in the meaning itself, it emphasizes the personal intent of the seeker. So the action behind the word cannot actually be detached from the personal motive that's driving it. So the prophets, they weren't inquiring as part of uh, responsibly fulfilling their role for the nation, as in, you know, my people need me to know my stuff. They had their own personal desire to actually understand it for their own benefit. So that's application number two. You ought to have a personal desire driving your study, a longing for your own growth and depth of relationship, not studying out of duty. So whether it's serving others, fulfilling responsibilities, or wanting to stay on track with your chronological Bible reading plan, you must desire to study God's word for the benefit of your own soul and your relationship with him. And this is something that I've been recently convicted of in life. Um, I tend to overcommit myself in all areas of life. Um, So then I find myself or my actions being driven largely by fulfilling commitments rather than nurturing my own heart. So I think many of you might know Garrett Cook. He tends to ask me this great question, uh, which is, you know, what has God been teaching you recently in life? And I think my most recent answer to him was something along the lines of, I need to pursue God and study scripture for intimacy's sake and not merely as part of commitments. Um, I recently read the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospels. It struck me in a new light, though. Uh, You know, we've all heard that we need to slow down. And to stop worrying about the things of this life, we need to be a Mary and sit at the feet of Jesus and not a Martha who's too busy to listen. But I'd always kind of, honestly, I'd always kind of written that story off a little bit in terms of, oh, Martha was too worried about, you know, if her house was clean, if her food tasted good. That's, that's trivial worldly stuff. Um, I don't worry about those things. Just look at my yard. You know, so I'm, I'm focused on the spiritual stuff, so I'm good. So I've, I've met that... Um, that point of the story, you know, I can check that off. However, when I read it again in a new light, um, it says, but Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And I realized that I've been too distracted from personal time, personal intimacy with God because I'm too busy preparing for others or just getting stuff checked off my list, even if it is spiritual stuff. Um, Honestly, I've developed a pretty terrible habit that I'm going to try and reverse quickly uh, of opening the Bible and thinking, okay, what can I teach others today? And I'm sure that when I do that, I frequently miss opportunities for the Spirit to speak to my own heart and to draw me nearer to God. I know I'm not alone in this, which is why I share it, because I I talked with a few other guys about this who resonated here. We can be so task-focused that the Bible becomes a teaching tool for preparations 
Um, but we neglect the blessing of sitting at the word, uh, listening for our own soul. I was convicted and challenged when I was talking with a brother who had declined an opportunity that I ended up doing um, because he knew it would interfere with his own personal devotions. And I really respected that. And it made me reflect and consider, who am I trying to please, man or God? So I know that this task-oriented disposition, it doesn't describe everyone here today, but I have to assume that everyone here feels strapped for time a large part of the time. So the point is, don't relegate your Bible time solely to taking care of business. Whether it's the woman's study that you're in that you need to prepare for, or you're teaching Sunday school, you're leading home group, you're doing storytelling at Awana, you're reading your own Bible plan, whatever it is, make sure that you aren't checking a box. Come at the Bible with an inquiry that is inherently driven by a personal desire for spiritual growth. And trust me, I'm I'm preaching to myself right now. So that's our second point. You can learn from the focus of the prophets to invest yourself personally in studying God's word with sincerity. So let's move on to our third point, considering the envy of the angels. So reading just the end of verse 12, it says, things into which angels long to look. And there are, there are three quick, interesting observations from the end of this verse. Um, long to look, you'll notice, is in the present tense, not the past tense. So this is actually still ongoing. They weren't just waiting to see the Messiah come, and then they checked out. And then second, the word for long represents a passionate and a strong desire. It's actually most often used in the New Testament for the word lust, but here we see it as a strong but godly urge. And then third, the word that uh, is translated as look, it actually means to peer in from the outside. It comes from the word uh, paracupto. It's the same word that was described when Peter and John got to the tomb and they stooped down to peer and look in, but they didn't go in the tomb. It's looking from the outside in. So here we can see that the angels are strongly desiring to peek into God's redemptive plan as an outsider. So the angels had a holy curiosity to know how God was going to save mankind, and they still have a holy curiosity to watch the Spirit work, saving sinners like you and I. Perhaps they reflect, I wonder what it's like to be saved, or what would it feel like to be forgiven, or I wonder what it feels like to receive grace. We know that the angels' interest extends beyond their curiosity here because they are joyful to see God's grace in action. In Luke 15, Jesus concludes two of his parables, uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin, with uh, the following two verses. So in verse 7, he says, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over 99 uh, 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then in verse 10, Jesus says, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we see that they rejoice in seeing sinners added to the family of God. Part of me kind of wonders if they were not also surprised about who was being added to the family. I can picture the angels watching and remarking, Whoa, did you just see that line, adulterous murderer, be forgiven? I never would have guessed he'd get into heaven. Or maybe they say, How about that stubborn and prideful old man? He finally decided to repent in the last year of his life. That's cutting it close. So if you were to put yourself in their shoes, though, and think about it, they're observing salvation as a perfected creature. 
it almost seems, it really does seem unjust, the concept of grace at the price of God himself. For the perfect almighty God to die in the place of weak and wicked sinners. Hillsong United captured this sentiment in song saying, Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on the cross. Accused in the absence of wrong. My sin washed away in your blood. Too much to make sense of it all. I know that your love breaks my fall. The scandal of grace, you died in my place, so my soul will live. And I love that part about it, the scandal of grace. Because grace really is undeserved. So there is this sense in which we believers know God experientially in a way that the angels do not and cannot because they don't need Christ's blood to save them. They don't need ransoming. Jesus didn't give his life for them. And I wonder then if we'll have a deeper element of love than the angels once we're perfected just because we know that we were purchased by Christ's blood. The angels, they praise and glorify God continuously But I wonder if their love isn't different because they weren't personally blessed by God's sacrifice. Perhaps you remember Jesus' parable that he told Simon the Pharisee in uh, Luke chapter 7. I'll just read verses 41 through 43, which capture his main point. Jesus says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. But there was no debt to cancel for the angels, whereas we had accrued a debt that we could never repay. So God's grace truly is a unique gift that we must treasure, perhaps even the envy of the angels. So from other passages in the Bible, we know that the angels are interested in our lives beyond just our redemption too. They're interested in how we glorify God. In 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul remarks of himself and the other apostles saying, we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So the angels were watching Paul and the apostles. And the the word spectacle actually comes from the Greek word theatron, which is where we get our word theater from. So you might think, well, yeah, of course the angels are going to watch the apostles. They're the church founders. But what does that have to do with watching me? Well, I'm glad you asked. So let's go to Ephesians 3 for the answer. In Ephesians 3, Paul gives an account for his twofold job description. First, what we usually know him for, which is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. But second, he says it's to bring to light the administration of the mystery. And that's a really fancy way of basically saying to make known how the church, which is the mystery, ought to be administered or how it ought to run. So Paul's other job was to explain how do you do church, essentially. And that's where you come in. Because Paul's unveiling of the mystery is really just how people ought to live their lives. How husbands love their wives, how wives submit to their husbands. How parents train their children, how children obey their parents. It's interactions between Christians at any level. It's the practicing the one another's. That's what the rest of Ephesians is all about, is Christian relationships. Because church administration really is just church life, or Christian life in community, because the church is the people. So tying this back to you and the angels, Here's what Ephesians uh, 3 verse 10 says. It gives the purpose for why Paul explains the church, how it should function. And it says, so that the church, oh, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
So can you really think of a more important purpose in your life than that? To show God's wisdom on display for all to see, including the angels. The way that you live your life with other Christians in community is how God has chosen to display his wisdom to the angels. So if you couple this with the fact that the uh, apostles were a spectacle or a theatron, I think it'd be fair to refer to the church as Universal Studios. So the church has become the grand theater or stage play and, and for all of his wisdom to be seen by the whole universe. So believer, when the angels watch you live your life in accordance with scriptures, they are learning from and seeing God's wisdom on display. So that concludes our third point. Treasure the gift of grace because it's unique and let your life reflect God's glory. Our fourth point is to consider the purpose of the prophecies. So reading the first half of verse 12, it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. So we see Christ predicted his own sufferings and glories, not for the benefit of the prophets, but for future generations of Christians, including us today. And one of the primary takeaways to all the studying and inquiring and searching that the prophets did was just to discover it wasn't for them. It wasn't for their time, but for us. They learned that they were serving us. And the word for serve here is diakonos, which you may recognize as the root word that we get deacons from. Um, It means to wait at tables, but its etymology is actually really interesting. It comes from two different words. One is dia, which means thoroughly, and konis, which means dust. So literally put together, it means thoroughly raise up dust. And the imagery behind this is that they're so busy serving that they're kicking up dust as they go when they're waiting tables. So they are, the prophets were busy in service for you. Isaiah was busy for your benefit. And there's three immediate applications from knowing that the prophecies were written to serve you. First is obvious. Appreciate it. Feel cared about. Jesus orchestrated these prophecies about his suffering and his glory hundreds of years before he was born and before, or before he came to earth so that you would benefit. So husbands, you might feel good about arranging a date a month or two in advance for your wife, but Jesus was able to plan how to serve you thousands of years before you existed. So are you grateful for these texts that were set in motion centuries before Christ came? The second application is to read them. If they're written for you, they're for you to study, to read, to dwell on. They're not just for the original intended audience and we get to look over their shoulders at their gift. They're for us as well. And they're not just an apologetics encyclopedia that you go and you put on your um, reference shelf for when you need to pull it down and look at something. But it's God's word that's documented intentionally to minister to your soul so you can have confidence and joy. And the third is if it's written for you, then you should expect that when you read it that you grow closer to God because of it. We should eagerly read the Old Testament prophets expecting our hearts to be stirred to praise when we see the sufferings that Christ predicted and endured, and then the glories that now we are part of with being part of his kingdom. So overall, these Old Testament prophecies, they're treasures for a strong faith. So are you using them and appreciating them? So due to time constraints, we're not going to look at the specific prophecies. That could be an entire series on its own. But I did want to read a couple verses from the New Testament about how both Paul and Jesus viewed the Old Testament prophecies. First is when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. 
He explained the Old Testament prophecies to them. In Luke 24, 26, it says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then after Jesus disappears, the disciples, they talk to each other and they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I always think it's interesting when they point back to Moses, because sometimes we forget that, um, that it started as early on as the Pentateuch, the first five books. And then Paul has a similar account. Uh, when he's before King Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul says, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So both Paul and Jesus used writings from Moses and the prophets to make a case for Jesus as the Christ. And I actually think this is one of the main reasons why there are Old Testament prophecies. It wasn't so that the Jews would be ready for the Messiah because clearly they were not. They crucified him. And Jesus also called down judgment on Jerusalem when they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. I think the primary reason for Old Testament prophecy was for future generations to be able to believe in Jesus as the Christ, even though they didn't get to see him. So we don't have to rely only on the several eyewitness accounts that we have. They're also, their accounts match perfectly with hundreds of prophecies spanning hundreds of years from numerous sources. There's no way that Christianity could ever have been fabricated across that time span. It was clearly orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. So when, when verse 12 refers to the things that have now been announced to you, these, are the things, these things are the fulfillments of numerous ancient prophecies. Many were written, but some of them include even imagery or things that acted out. Like if you remember um, when the Lord provided the ram that was stuck in, with its horns and the thorns on uh, Mount Moriah, that would be an example of a prophecy that happened as well for our benefit. So when you, when you sum up the net effect of all of these Jesus was the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah without a shadow of a doubt. He fulfilled the Christ credentials to a T, and there was no element of chance involved. And this is a very important point for Christian apologetics. And I wish I had time to delve into a study uh, that Peter Stoner did, but I don't. So I'll give you a 45-second summary and encourage you to Google it if you're interested. Um, But uh, Peter Stoner and many graduate students, they did a statistical analysis of the probability that Jesus could have fulfilled just eight of the major messianic prophecies by chance alone. And they calculated a probability of one in 10 to the 17th. That's one in 100 million trillion. So a number like that's really hard to understand. So to illustrate it, it would take 10 to the 17th silver dollars to cover the state of Texas to a depth of two feet. So then if you were to take one silver dollar, paint it red, and you would have the same chance if you were to find it blindfolded on your first attempt as an individual would have had to fulfill all eight of these prophecies. And that's just for eight prophecies. There are over 300 messianic prophecies that are found within 26 books of the Old Testament written by over 20 authors over approximately 1,000 years. So the proof of fulfilled prophecy is evidence that we can have unalterable confidence in God's plan and in his character. So that concludes our fourth point. Old Testament prophecies, they show you that you're dearly loved. It's for you. And that you can fully trust in God. 
And then the last point in our outline is, is brief, and it's more of an overall reflection on the prior points. It's the so what that stems from all of the main point of our passage here. So to sum up the main points, we understand and experience God's grace. Because of this, believers are more privileged than the prophets and the angels, and we can have unalterable confidence in God's plan. Therefore, we ought to, as verse 8 says, to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. So our passage in verses 10 through 12 is really just a continuation from the prior section in which Peter is putting life into perspective. This is all one string of thought. And Peter, he encouraged the believers to endure their earthly trials, knowing that their faith can glorify God as they await their heavenly union with Christ. And the source of that endurance is experientially knowing the blessing of salvation by grace and their confidence in God. Therefore, believers ought not to despair when facing trials, but can overcome difficulties with an ability to rejoice with untainted joy. So this is the point. Our salvation ought to constitute a far-reaching and long-term source of inexhaustible joy. So how about you today? What do you think of that? Does that describe the condition of your heart? First and foremost, are you saved? Is this blessed salvation yours? Have you placed your confidence in God? And if not, then why? Salvation is essential and free. God is trustworthy, accessible, and faithful. And if you aren't trusting in Jesus, then who are you trusting in? Yourself? I know I wouldn't trust in myself, even for a single day, to uphold God's law, let alone a lifetime. So please surrender your life to Jesus if you haven't. But for those who have, for those who call themselves believers here, does your joy and fulfillment in life originate from your salvation? It's a tremendous blessing to receive forgiveness and grace. The Old Testament prophets, they saw it from afar, and the angels gaze from the outside, but we get to experience it ourselves. It's a tremendous blessing, and I don't deserve forgiveness or grace or salvation, but boy, do I want it. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? How great is our gospel. And Peter says, look, no matter what your trials are, no matter what difficulties you face, remember the greatness of your salvation. So I'll close my message with two questions similar to what John MacArthur used and convicted my own heart. Is your salvation that precious to you? Or have you left your first love? It was precious at first, wasn't it? When you were first saved, oh, it was great, but how is it now? Have you lost sight of it? If so, let that love be rekindled in your heart. Please stand as we close in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for sending your son to do what we could never do, um, to overcome death. We no longer have to fear death um, because we have victory through you. And we're so thankful for the salvation. Please help us to reflect that joy. Um, Sometimes we take it for granted. So I just pray that you would remind us and stir our hearts that when we think of what you went through to purchase that for us, that we would be ever so grateful and live uh, joyfully because of it. In your name, amen.